You can open up your Bibles this morning to Judges chapter 5. I don't know about you, but I love a good ballad. There's, uh, there's some really good Irish ballads that exist that are out there that I, I don't know why, I just love listening to those things. There's, uh, there's a group out there called the High Kings, and they sing a lot of the old Irish folk songs, Irish ballads. And it's just enjoyable. It's just fun to listen to. They, they tell stories. Some of them are comical. Some of them are tragic. But it's, it's just a story told through song format. That's what a ballad is. According to Oxford, a ballad is a poem or a song narrating a story in short stanzas. Traditional ballads are typically of unknown authorship, having been passed on orally from one generation to the next as part of the folk culture. Many ballads were written perhaps to pass time or to preserve stories or to entertain. Uh, Some were to help preserve morale in wartime. So you think of some of the old war songs that were known to be sung by soldiers during like the Revolutionary War or the Civil War. Songs like Yankee Doodle, When Johnny Comes Marching Home, and The Battle Cry of Freedom. Many of these songs were sung by soldiers and they had the effect of preserving morale amongst the troops as they were singing those songs in unison together. Yankee Doodle is a particularly interesting and amusing history. It was originally written by, uh, by the British, making fun of the, English sol- or the American soldiers, rather, and the American soldiers co-opted the song and sang it in mockery of the British who had originally written the song. Uh, it's, it's, a pretty, it's an amusing history, a fascinating bit of history to see how songs affected not only the outcome of the war to a degree, but also their role in the aftermath of celebrating the victories that had been won. Well, interestingly enough, we have in our text today a, a victory ballad following the battle that Israel had with Sisera and his armies. What we have is a song of triumph, it is a song of victory, but it's also a song that pokes a little bit of fun at the enemy as well. And so as we, as we examine this, we're going to see, okay, yes, it's, it's accurate. This is a ballad of victory over Sisera and his armies. But it's also a little bit more than that, isn't it? It's actually much more than that. This ballad has been preserved for us. It is a part of the Scriptures. And as such, this, this fun victory song is, is not only an occasion of, a song on the occasion of triumph, but it's also a song that teaches us theology. It's a song telling us something about our God. It is a celebration, yes, but it's also a poetic polemic against those who would oppose the Lord or who would do nothing to serve Him. Today we are going to see that our God is indeed a warrior God. And that can be a comfort or it can bring distress depending on where you stand. Let's recall for a moment what has occurred in the previous chapter. Again, this is a ballad that's kind of retelling the same story that we discussed last week. God called Barak to go to battle against Sisera's armies, and he said, hey, it's only if Debbie goes with me. I'm not going out alone. I need this this, uh, judge, Deborah. I need her with me. And Deborah says, fine, but the glory will go to a woman. Well, Barak is successful. Sisera flees into the tent of his ally Heber, and there is his wife, Jael, who gets him to sleep and then promptly pounds a tent stake right through his head, killing him on the spot. 
And so what we have in our chapter that we're examining today is the same story, but this time it's put in poetic form. It's placed in a, in a ballad-type format, likely sung by the Israelite children as they're having their jolly old time, years sung for centuries and generations following after these events. And again, in the song, we see our God being a warrior, and that can be a comfort or a curse, depending on where you stand. First, let's see how our God is indeed a warrior, and He fights for His people. The Lord fights for His people. Let's look at Judges chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Immediately, this song jumps right into things and it presents the reality that this battle belongs to the Lord. This is the Lord's victory. The Lord has fought for His people. This reminds us yet again that when God fights for you, there are none who can oppose. If you recall from chapter 4 as we were going through that passage, one of the reasons why Jabin and Sisera, why, why their armies was such a formidable force, why they were able to have such oppression upon the people for such an extended period of time, is because they had these 900 chariots of iron. They were one of the first civilizations into the Iron Age, fighting against a civilization that was only still in the Bronze Age. Judges chapter 4, verse 3 reads that when the people cried out to the Lord for help because he had, again, that's Jabin and Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron and oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. On paper, on paper this is an insurmountable foe. Humanly speaking, this cannot be overcome. Like, there's, there's a reason why 900 chariots is, should strike fear into the hearts of the people. But God is not scared of chariots. Look how it says He fought for His people. It says He brought rain in verse 4. It says, You went up from Seir, you marched from the region of Eden, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped, yes, the clouds dropped water. It, It rained. There was a storm. God brought rain from Edom. You might think, okay, well, what's the significance of that? Big whoop. All right, it rained. What's a little rain going to do against this army? Well, the rain would have made the battlefield a giant's mud pits. And you know what doesn't work too well in mud? Chariot wheels. Those chariots, when it got stuck right in that mud, those horses would have been unable to pull the chariots further. And so all those men riding in those chariots are now useless in how they were designed to be. They would have had to get off their chariots and fight man to man once again. Suddenly, the military superiority was eliminated with just one rainstorm. This reminds me of the text in Isaiah where the prophet speaks of what will eventually come for the nation of Israel, where Isaiah says, no weapon that's formed against you will prosper. 
Well, here's a moment where they were, there were weapons that was brought against the people of God, but they did not prosper because God caused them to be brought to ruin. When God is fighting for you, it doesn't matter if the enemy has 10,000 nukes pointed at your head with your name on it. If God is for you, if God says no, nothing will come of that. They will be brought to ruin. But really, things are actually even a little bit more juicy in this bit of song than what might just first appear on the surface as we read through this. As we think about the context, or he, he says, oh yes, God came up from Eden. He marched from the region of Eden. The earth trembled, the heavens dropped water. What's going on with the reference to Edom? Well, if we think about this for a moment, who is the God of the Canaanites? and Edom, and Seir, and these other places that were mentioned in this text. Who is the God that the Israelites are continually tempted to go after? Baal, right? Well, who is Baal? Baal is the storm god. Baal is supposed to be the one who controls the weather. Baal is supposed to be the one who fights for the Canaanites. And yet here the Lord is. Here is Yahweh showing up Baal and demonstrating with power that He is the one who is in control. This is, this is smacks right smack dab in the face of, the, of His enemy. Right in the face of these false gods. You think your God is going to do something for you? Well, here comes Yahweh rolling in with clouds of thunder, dropping rain, bringing the, the Canaanite armies to nothing. And we know from chapter 4 that not a man was left. Well, this won't be the first time that we find in this ballad such irony and pointed humor in the midst of this. Just for a moment, let's skip down to verse 19 and 22 because it, it kind of restates and reiterates this idea of, of the theme of God fighting for Israel in this poetic form. Uh, verses 19 through 22, the kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought, from the courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Again, with poetic imagery of a celestial fight, the Lord has done what Baal ought to have done for the Canaanites, if Baal was real, but he is not. It is Yahweh who is sovereign over the elements. It is Yahweh who is sovereign over all things. The Lord fights for His people. Well, why was it that Israel needed God to fight for her in the first place? Beside the fact that they were severely outmatched, why, why are they in this position where they need the Lord to, to work in such a mighty way in the first place? Let's, let's go back again to verse 6 and pick up where we left off a moment ago. And we will see how they are in this position through apostasy. The people have forsaken the Lord their God and how that brought about societal decay. The song goes on, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, 
In the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. The travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? Here we have the plight of the people. Deborah, she writes, she says, first, it's the days of Shamgar and the days of Jael. These are two non-Israelites who were the heroes of the time. Seems that there was, again, this, this dearth of leadership within the land. We talked about that last week as well. This isn't in the days of Barak, all right, our mighty commander. Except, you know, Barak was a bit of a coward and didn't want to go into battle unless he had Deborah with him. It's not in the days of Barak. She, she doesn't even say it's in the days of, of Deborah. It's in the days of two Gentiles. Shamgar, he's not an Israelite. Jael, she's not an Israelite. These are two Gentiles, and yet it is in the days of these two individuals. There's a lack of godly leadership within the land. And look at the results of such things. When there is no leadership where, where the people aren't being led according to God's Word, this is the result that we see that the highways are abandoned. There's essentially no law in the lands. I think recently, in the last couple of years, we've seen some cities experiment with the concept of defunding the police and seeing the skyrocketing crime that, that resulted from those policies. Where there is no restraint, human depravity knows no limits. And such was the case in Israel. Highwaymen and robbers everywhere, making it unsafe to travel among the main roads and, or to stay out late at night. Houses of immorality and sh- brought, that brought shame and reproach before Almighty God. And because of their insistence upon forsaking the Lord, they needed new gods. If they're not going to follow after the one true God, they needed new gods. And that's what verse 8 says. It says, the new gods were chosen. War was in the gates. And this is really the reason why they're in the mess that they're in. Uh, they're, they're in a position where they're in a, they're in a tough spot. Right? There's, there's crime everywhere. It's not safe to be among the main roads. You might say, man, they're, they're really up a creek there without a paddle. Well, it's because they threw the paddles overboard themselves when they abandoned the Lord their God. Though Deborah has inserted herself as the contrast to the leaderless days in verse 7 where she says that I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. She is the contrast to the dearth of leadership that exists. Yet the fact remains that the people have still forsaken their God. They have chosen other gods and as a result they are oppressed. This is the judgment that God has brought upon them as He promised. And there isn't a sword or a shield to be found in the land. That's what the end of verse 8 states. There is no weaponry. This is what happens when societies abandon God. It is not safe. And that remains true today. The most dangerous places in the world today are the places where God's Word is most ignored. But this only serves to highlight the mercy and the grace of God. Why should God save these lawless people? 
Why should he? They have abandoned him. They have chosen for themselves other gods. They don't claim Yahweh anymore. They have forsaken him. Why should he save them? Well, it is only for his own namesake. It is at this juncture that the tone of the song begins to change. It begins with this jubilation about, yes, the Lord has, is fighting for his people. And then it says, well, this is why he needs to, because we have gone our separate ways. We have gone away that has forsaken the Lord. Well, now the song shifts again, and we see that God's work is worthy to be proclaimed. Look at uh, verses 9 through 11, where Deborah continues to, to sing her song. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of His villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. First, we see the commanders offering themselves willingly to go to battle, followed by this command, bless the Lord. These are the same people among whom there is a dearth of leadership. This is the same people who have no spears and no shields. The same people who have gone after other gods, all of a sudden, here they are rising up to go against the enemy. So Deborah says, her heart goes out to them. That's a phrase that refers to a pride and admiration that she feels for the men going into war. She sees them and she is, she is proud to say, yes, these are my people. You know, and we know how the story ended, right? We studied that from last week. We know that Israel had victory in the midst of that. But, but just for a moment, think back of, from the perspective of those soldiers as they're going into battle. They've got 10,000 men. They're going up against an army that has 900 chariots. But that's not the totality of their army, right? There's other foot soldiers as well. And so they're going up against what seems like insurmountable odds. They, they, they're going up as you know, the concept of sheep before the slaughter. They're going to die, if we look at it merely from a human perspective. They do not have great odds, and yet their hearts are filled with courage as they march forward, trusting their God would act. And so what Deborah is saying is that God has done a great work here. God has done a great work, and the battle's not even fought yet. At this point in the song, the battle's not even fought yet. But just these, these men, the commanders of Israel rising up, the, the 10,000 soldiers that go forward, God has done a great work even just with this. He has turned the hearts of the people to enthusiastically move and be instruments for God. So we get a story worth proclaiming. Tell it to the rich merchants who sit idly by watching Israel's distress. Tell it to those who are on the road passing by. Tell it to all. Sing this song. Our God has done a great thing. We must proclaim it everywhere. And because God has done this, it's time to march. And so the battle cries begin. But who will answer the call? Who will respond to the call to go out to battle? Verses 12 and following. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinanoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. 
from Ephraim, their roots, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of hearts. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling of the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond, and Gilead stayed beyond in the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. This recounts the clans that went into battle and those who also stayed behind. Not everyone went out to war. Some had second thoughts. It says there were great searchings of the heart, right? They, they were like, eh, maybe, I'm not sure if I want to do this. They hesitated, they balked, they flaked out. They got cold feet. But the others pressed on. They risked their lives to the death. And now the actions of both are recorded for all generations to see. Who has courage this day? And who does have courage today? I know we need courage in our day. Though the people went forth into battle courageously, Deborah again praises God, recognizing that it is He who has won the day. God has fought for His people. Verses 29 and through, or rather 19 through 22, uh, we, we touched on that a moment ago, so I'm not going to spend much time on that to say, but to say that it is, this is the moment of victory. It is one that has been brought about by the sovereign act of Almighty God in the face of Baal. He brought the storms, he brought the rain, and he destroyed the forces of Sisera. Now the ballot is two-thirds complete, one-third remaining, and this, the remaining third of this ballot has a number of sharp turns, and it all serves to highlight this singular point, the enemies of God will not prevail. The first sharp turn is in verse 23. Curse Meraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord and against the mighty. There's a number of remarkable things about this verse. First, seemingly interrupts the flow of the ballad. We've just had this this great moment of, all right, these these tribes are going out, they're going out to battle, and they have this victory. God fights for His people. There's this great moment. It builds this great crescendo of victory. And then this verse comes in and interrupts and says, ah, there's a problem here. Meras. A curse is uttered. Second, uh, we don't know who, what, or where Meraz is. We can gather from the, the things that are mentioned here um, 
that is probably in close relation to where the battle took place. There would seem to be a logical conclusion to be drawn, and yet we don't know exactly where they were. We don't know uh, what brand, what clan they were a part of in the people of Israel. We don't know exactly where they were. This is the only time the name Merez appears in the Old Testament Scriptures. This is it. We don't know anything else about these people. The third striking thing in this verse is the appearance of the angel of the Lord. We've not heard from the angel of the Lord since going back to chapter 2, when he pronounced judgment upon the people of Israel for abandoning the Lord. And the angel of the Lord appeared and said, the Lord is no longer going to drive out the people before you because you have forsaken him. And here he is doing the same with his pronouncement of judgment against Meraz. And finally, this judgment is striking because it is due to their non-activity. He doesn't call them out for their idolatry or their immorality, although that may very well be implied. But it's because they simply stayed home when the rest went out to war. And we have to be careful. It's not like God needed them, right? Like, God did just fine without them, right? God won the day. But these people had a duty. They had a responsibility. And they failed to answer the call. And so they are cursed. And, you know, the fact that they're never heard from again or there's no other mention of them in the rest of the Scriptures, to me, that's a bit of an indication that when God curses a people, it's pretty effective. There's no doubt about the outcome of what shall come about. As the Lord says, curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord. Meraz receives that sharp rebuke and a curse, and that is going to be contrasted with the blessing that is going to come upon Jael, the, the second sharp turn. We see, okay, this, this cursing is brought against Meraz, and all of a sudden we're whipping right back around to a moment of blessing upon Jael. Verse 24, "'Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenites, of tent-dwelling women most blessed.'" He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Again, this poetic retelling of the story that we read from the previous chapter. Notice the text calls her blessed. She has done something good in the midst of this. I mentioned before the irony that's, that's present within the story, but also within this ballad. And here's another instance of that. We've got, there's, there's Meraz, just a verse before, the Israelite city. They ought to have helped. They ought to have gone to war. And they did nothing. So they are cursed. Ironically, on the flip side, now you've got Jael, a Canaanite woman, wife of Heber the Kenite, who was the ally of Sisera, who ought to have provided him refuge, and yet she kills him. 
I like how Daniel Block put it as he's commenting on this reality. He wrote, Meraz represents those Israelites who have taken their stand on the side of the Canaanites. Jael represents those non-Israelites who have taken their stand on the side of Israel. There's a complete role reversal in the midst of this. I mean, you could almost hear the glee within the rhythm of the words of the song. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. <laughs> just, there's just that, that gleefulness in the midst of it. Now, some object to this kind of thing. Like, oh, how can we sing such songs of such brutality, right? I think our culture does this a little more than we might care to admit. I mean, you listen to some of the songs that might be played, and it's just like, okay, yeah, there's, there's something. Or you even think back, I mentioned the, uh, some of the war ballads and things of years ago. Well, I came across this, this uh, there's a song, Run, Rabbit, Run. It's about a farmer who's hunting rabbits for his rabbit pie. In World War II, the lyrics were changed to Run, Adolf, Run, as they're hunting down Hitler. Kids learn songs like Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. We think nothing of that. What happens at the end of that? The walls came a-tumbling down. Everyone dies. <laughs> That's what happens in that story. Only a boy named David. You know that song, Only a Little Sling. Round and round and round and round, and the giant came a-tumbling down. When I was a kid in children's church, we used to sing that song and we would act it out. Someone would be David, somebody would be Goliath as we're singing the song and round and round and round and round, throwing the sling and the giant would fall over and then whoever was playing David would run over and pretend to cut off the head of the giant. (laughs) We're telling the story. We're singing the song. We're telling the story. It's a song about how God has acted mightily for His people. The children are taking delight in it. Well, that's basically what we've got going on here. Jail with the tent peg, down she drove, struck, crushed, shattered, and pierced. Down he sank, fell, and dead. A song proclaiming what God did and how He did it, doing so in a memorable and humorous way even. A story filled with all kinds of irony, expressing God's sense of humor and also God's declaration. You know, no matter what we might think, of the different geopolitical things going on. we got Kenites and, and, and Heber the Kenite aligned with Sisera. All those things. No, God is ultimately the sovereign one over all these things. So Sisera, the enemy of Israel and of God, receives retribution at the hands of the woman, Jael. And then our ballad takes another sharp turn, and this one is probably the sharpest turn of all thinking all the jubilation and all, the, all the, the funness of the rhythm of that song as it's going along. And then we come to verse 28, where the scene shifts dramatically. We find this, out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer, Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? 
a womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. From Jael's tent, we are suddenly taken to the room of Sisera's mother. She is weeping, wondering why her son isn't home yet. She clearly fears the worst, and her princesses seek to comfort her with their words. Hey, he's just, I'm just dividing the spoil. You know, that, that's, why they, that's why it's taken so long. They're just, they're just enjoying themselves. That line, a womb or two for every man, it means exactly what you think it might mean. Women were considered part of the spoils of war. And the warlords made every use of their supposed rights as the conquering ones. It is wicked, it is shameful, and only further serves to highlight the wickedness and the depravity of the enemies of Yahweh. But we know that that's not what Sisera was doing. Sisera was a dead man. He was expecting to be able to rape a few women Instead, he is dead at the hands of a woman. He wanted to have his way with the women, and instead a woman had her way with him, and he is no longer alive. Thus, the greatest bit of God's divine irony is saved for the end of this grand ballad, and the conclusion sings of the triumph of the Lord. Verse 31, "'So may all your enemies perish, O Lord.'" May they all get tent pegs through their skulls. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And then the conclusion of it all. And the land had rest for 40 years brings a conclusion to this cycle of Barak and Deborah. That is Deborah's ballad. Many of the common themes of Judges are found within it. The Lord fighting for His own. We see the apostasy that sows decay. Who will answer the call of the word of the Lord to go forth and to heed His word? And there's the surety of judgment upon those who persist in rebellion and forsake His word. Yahweh is a warrior. And Yahweh as a warrior, it's a comfort to those who are His own. Yahweh as a warrior is also a curse to those who forsake Him. In the midst of the story, there's, there's two halves to this, right? There's the excitement and the jubilation of, of what God has done for His people, but also the judgment and condemnation upon those who refuse to heed the word of the Lord. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. May justice be done. Not everyone answered the call. Meraz received the curse. But blessed are those whose courage does not fail, who do seek to do what is right, who abide by the word of the Lord. Those are the ones who can rejoice when we see God fighting for His people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this ballad that you've preserved within your word. 
Lord, we see some of the humor within it. We see some of the irony present, and it all draws us to worship you, to see how you have sovereignly orchestrated these things, how you have brought these things together. We see the characters at play, and we, we see the story. Indeed, many of the details are a bit gruesome, and yet it reveals who you are as the warrior, which is a blessing for your people. We know that one day when you return to this earth, that you will come as a warrior to establish your kingdom, and we look forward to that day. But Lord, may we also be zealous for you, zealous to proclaim your good news, knowing that you as a warrior is a comfort to your people, but it is also ought to rightly strike terror into the hearts of those who persist in rebellion against you. May we be faithful heralds of your word. May we faithfully answer your call to go forth and to proclaim your goodness, proclaim the great things that you have done, that others may heed your word as well and look upon you as Savior and not judge. Thank you for your word. Pray that it would be a comfort and a challenge to our hearts today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.